Welcome one and all. I'm Chris Stone, the Virtual Agile Coach, and this is the Virtually Agile Podcast, the pod that shares conversations with Agile thought leaders, as well as amplifying newer voices. You'll hear about agility, virtual working, and everything in between. In today's episode, we talk about product management, road mapping pitfalls, the notion of deadlines in business language, as well as agile certifications and their value. If you find value in listening, don't forget to follow or subscribe on your platform of choice. It's the best way to hear about the latest episodes as they land. Enjoy the show, folks. Right, fellow Agilists, welcome to another episode in Season 3 of the Virtually Agile Videocast. Today's guest is a product manager and a writer of many articles on Medium who aims to help teams discover better ways of working and avoids that trap of becoming a feature factory. I'm very pleased to welcome Martin. Damn, I've forgotten how to pronounce your last name. <laughs> Martin Dalmain. Dalmain, perfect. It's uh, it's too tricky for a native English speaker to uh, try and pronounce your 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 Dutch name. I apologise. That's awful. okay. That's okay. It happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> how are you in this this spooky season, this October month? I'm doing really well. Like it's a busy month. Like uh, yeah, and uh, it's getting darker and darker. It's getting colder and wetter. I mean, I'm from the Netherlands. We're kind of like uh, wet swamp people, you know. So <laughs> it's not I'm the sure best they, time I'm of sure, year. I'm sure they love that description of themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Martin, some of our listeners perhaps haven't come across your work. So, would you please give us a little bit more about yourself and, and your journey with with agility? Yeah. So yeah, basically I don't have, I mean, I don't have a background in tech, first of all, I studied biology and I have a master in functional genomics. So analysis of genetic data sets. Um, my first job was as a QA working in a waterfall company. Then there was this one person who was really into scrum and he was very fanatic and very enthusiastic. And I kind of got infected by him. So, uh, yeah, and that's how I started out, basically just reading the Scrum Guide, reading books, of course, from the big names like Mike Cohen and Gunther Pahaya. And uh, yeah, slowly I started writing. And of course, in the beginning, my articles weren't that great, but I did my best, of course. And uh, I kept doing it. And I actually slowly moved from writing about Scrum and Agile more into product management because, yeah, that's where I want to aim it, to bridge this gap because I think there's a lot of writing on Scrum and Agile, a lot of writing on product management, the intersection of those two is not as popular. And I, I don't even know why, but that's at least what I observe. Well, enter you. Yeah. This is where your 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 niche then lies. Now, I mentioned yeah. it's spooky season. It, it is Halloween. And to listeners of the show, uh, I believe you're going to tell us a bit of a, a horror story about product management and road mapping. Yeah, I can tell you a, a horror story. So. I was working, I'm not going to tell a lot of details with the company, but I was working at this company and uh, every quarter we did road mapping and it was a gruesome endeavor where we literally would talk for weeks about our roadmaps. And then this culminated in a single day where I actually would show up at the office with 10 other product owners and we would talk about the roadmap all the whole day. And the roadmap had all kinds of rules like colors for indicating dependencies, uh, business cases. Uh, uh, yeah, so um, the whole day we would spend talking and grilling each other about it. And then it wouldn't be done, you know? No, 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 no. Then, then afterwards, I would have another meeting alone with the CEO, the domain owner, and the CTO, where I would get grilled again. 
Like, why did you prioritize it this way? What if we change the order? And then after this whole whole yeah, circus, as I call it, right? Then the roadmaps were stashed away and nobody looked at them anymore unless somebody acted like they were important again. For example, you found out, oh, I need help from another team. Is it on the roadmap? Great, they're going to help me. Is it not on the roadmap? Oh, I've got a problem. Now I, how can we do this without help needing help from another team? So that that's kind of the, the biggest horror story I've ever encountered. <laughs> I would probably guess that that isn't a story that's unfamiliar to others. I've I've worked with companies before, and I remember a similar situation. A CEO, he would be in the town halls, and he would say, "Hey, if it's not on the plan for this next two years, it's not getting done." Whilst also uh, trying to profess that they are an agile company. Yeah. does amuse so i think yeah many people have probably experienced that exact scenario correct no i believe so too so yeah so I, today i gave a talk about uh, uh, mind the product and actually i was surprised by how familiar it was with other product owners and product managers so uh, I, I expect some people but literally everybody said yeah i i have lived that and even some people were saying i'm, I'm living it right now right and even worse <laughs> So you mentioned this this talk you, you you gave today. I think it was something around taming the road mapping circus. Yes. So what are, what are some of the key takeaways from that talk? What what could what could product managers or, or product owners experiencing some of these challenges with a uh, road mapping circus? What could they do to try and improve that situation? So I think the the most important relation for me was so when I started out as a product owner, right? I was I was thinking. Delivering a, delivering a feature is equal to delivering value. We can meet all the timelines. We just need to work together longer and get better. Like, uh, so all those mistakes or all those beliefs, let's just say, that I later found out were incorrect, I had them as well. So I think the biggest epiphany for me, at least, is that you need to engage with your stakeholders on this level because roadmaps have a dual function. On the one hand, it's for stakeholders and, and, and yeah, business people, like people to understand what are you going to be working on, right? On the other hand, it's an, it's a living artifact used by different teams to see, hey, this is this is the road ahead based on our current understanding. And if and if you and you need to serve this bo both these audiences, but they have different mindsets. And and unless you bring them closer together, you're always going to have friction either with your stakeholders because they don't get it, right? Why why don't we have timelines? Why isn't it a Gantt chart? You guys know what you're doing. Or the developers who are saying, why is this a Gantt chart? Do you know what you're doing? Like, it doesn't work that way. We don't know it will take three months. We don't. We, we have no clue. We don't have enough information. So this, I think, is a very fundamental thing you need to be, it's important to be aware of. I completely agree where you say it's a, a living document. You know, we, yeah. we, we roadmap things because inevitably it's based on what you know at that point in time, right? This is the current prioritized list of things we know we're focusing on. But a few weeks time from now, we may learn based on starting work on something that had some unknowns around it, that actually is a lot more complex to deliver. And therefore that may reduce its priority and may, may shift it further back the roadmap or off the roadmap at all. You may find something brand new that needs to go come in ahead of something on the roadmap and that changes things as well. I think, as you say, this, this focus on feature equals value or even another another similar one velocity equals value it's quite oh, yeah. quite damaging yeah. we see that out there a lot as well right yeah and i think the, the ver what's very important is you need to yeah so this is a saying i don't know from who, who it is but you need to meet, meet your stakeholders where they are not where you want them to be right mm -hmm. so you need to build a relationship with them understand their world understand their interests 
and then you need to show your perspective. So to give a concrete example, so um, I was working on building a planning module at a company and, and, and we built it in a different way than a customer wanted a Google Calendar, right? So you could plan everything from uh, three, one to two. And uh, basically, if we would have just done what they wanted, that would have meant redesigning the whole planning module. So I just called them and said, can you explain to me how you work? Like, just walk me through. You have, a, you have a budget, you plan a project. How do you do your job? And then as I found out how they worked, I actually found out that they don't need a calendar. They don't need to plan. Their, their main problem is I want someone to know, someone needs to know when they start and when it should be finished. And as well, I want to be able to prioritize so they know what's the most important thing, maybe due to dependencies. And that's, the, I think, the biggest danger. Like, if you're not aware of this and you think, do this feature and then life is great, then you're going to be missing out and you're going to build a lot of invaluable stuff. And this I explained like to the whole company, I, this example, to just say like, hey, don't talk about features. You need to dig deeper to understand what they are trying to achieve, because otherwise we'll build something and we have no clue whether it will meet their needs. Mm. The outcome behind what you're working on so important to align around yeah how you can potentially achieve that because because this is this is what i often say it comes down to autonomy with the team as well i would rather encourage uh people to be describing things in terms of the problem to be solved or the outcome they're desired desiring rather than a solution because there could be 10 ways to solve solve a problem and uh, the experts who are actually doing the work on the ground they probably know the best way of doing it and, and they could be suggesting well here's this way and this is why uh, and as a consequence of understanding the outcome behind it, they're more likely to produce a better outcome, you know, the, the, the better result that adds value. Now, I, I want to touch a bit more on, on, on the value side of things, given that we've reflected on features don't equal value. Are there any techniques that you would recommend to anyone in terms of helping reinforce a focus on value uh, and ensuring that you are measuring value of, of you know, the work you're doing over time and taking that into account when creating roadmaps and prioritizing. Yeah. So what I think is really important is you need to do discovery. So what you see is a lot of scrum teams, they're really focused on delivery, but there's a step before that, like just talk to a customer, just ask them, to, like, can you show me what you're, how you're working at the moment? What are your challenges? What are your pain points? What takes the most time? What, like, just see them how they currently do it, and that gives you so much insights. And 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 if you just jump to conclusions, that's easy, but it's also very risky. So I think that's the the first step. Like, you need to really understand what is value. And to give you a concrete example, like, there's a very famous quote: people don't want a quarter-inch drill bit; they want a hole, right? But actually, that that isn't true. Like, that you don't go far enough. Like they don't want a hole, they want to hang that painting or they want to have this nice cupboard like with, with books for their kid. And it's and it's about how does it make them feel when they see their kid take the books out of the shelf themselves and they feel proud because uh, their daughter can do that and uh, there's less clutter in the room. It also makes them feel good. These are things that people want. Like they don't want this hole, like they don't care about it. They care about it. It's also, you know, so I think that's the difficult part. You need to really like peel away these layers and the, the best technique I've seen is jobs to be done interviewing. But I do want to say is I'm not an expert on jobs to be done interviewing. Like okay. there are many podcasts explaining how to do it. And it's super fascinating because basically what's very counterintuitive to me. And they also say that it's very uncomfortable is that you need to interview people and really ask them, 
what are you, what were you doing at that moment like go into all the details and then you can find out what was really happening and that's because people they always when you ask them a question they can come up with a rational explanation but that is not what necessarily what happened and if you force to just them to tell what's going on then you'll get way more information and then you can find the truth because what we'll tell you isn't always really what happened <laughs> it reminds me of uh the kind of Japanese concept of Gemba walks, going to where the value is and experiencing it live in person, you know, seeing actually how someone is doing something out in, in the field, whatever that may be. And I know it can be tricky sometimes with uh, you know, software and virtual mediums and just by the virtue of someone watching someone else as they're performing something means that they're, they're may, they may behave certain, you know, slightly differently. But completely to your point, you know, if you get someone to explain exactly why they've clicked that button, uh, I've, I've experienced this myself. I did a bit of uh, product research for a, a platform called Butter, um, who, who were looking to create a, a facilitation platform. I've, I've, I've used this fairly extensively. And they were doing exactly that. They're asking, why did you click there? What were you, what, what, what did that button make you think was going to happen? And that sort of thing. So I think absolutely that sort of approach can help you really drill down to the crux of the problem and understand what the customer wants, what they were desiring, what behavior they were exhibiting. And, and that can, I believe, result in a better quality product. I think the other thing I wanted to mention is that there is so much benefit in, in having uh, you, your teams anchored to customers. You know, the, 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 the Agile Manifesto itself talks about customer centricity, then, then putting the customer first. But then how many metrics are there out there that we use that are all about productivity and, and work in progress and, and so on and so forth? How, how many are actually about how often we engage with customers? So I, I, I personally subscribe to one called Days Since Last User Engagement that tries to keep you keep that number of days as low as possible so that you're frequently interacting, you're frequently anchored to what the customer's looking for, and you're more likely to produce something that they, they want that's going to work and that's going to be valuable to them. I completely agree. I'm also not in the camp of maximizing flow efficiency because what you see is you're just so focused on delivery. Right, uh, but but if you talk to a customer, where do you need? Is there a spring backlog item for that? Often not, right? Or like you understand what I mean? Like, uh, I I'm I'm not in the camp of delivery, 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 right? Like like spend enough time understanding what you're trying to achieve. That's way more valuable, and otherwise you're probably will deliver more features. But as I think it's like um, I forgot the name, Dieter Rams, very famous designer who inspired Apple. Uh, he says he says. Uh, Weniger, uh, aber besser. So less but better. <laughs> I think that's what you should be aiming for. And that's the most difficult thing to do because you need to remove. And if you remove something, like as much as possible, it means you need to have a very deep understanding of what you're doing. And if you don't, you cannot do that because everything feels important. And it resonates back to the Agile Manifesto principle, right? Simplicity, maximize the amount of work not done. You know, just we don't want to just churn out features that don't add value. Actually, there's a lot of, um, a lot of movement I've been, I've been seeing out there about removing features because they're they're, they're essentially waste. They're, they're not being used. They're just there that someone's built and essentially they're debt in the system that you've created that aren't being used. So yeah, I think I think value yeah, there's a lot to be a lot to be said for it. Now, uh, what are your thoughts on deadlines? I'm very intrigued. Where do, where do they fit in in your world with regards to road mapping, development of things, stuff being produced? Um, so. How do you say, I'm not going to say you should never set deadlines, right? I've also done it. I've actually done it recently. Like, uh, 
But I do think it's an instrument you need to be aware of that you shouldn't be using constantly, right? Mm -hmm. So if there is a case where there is a sense of urgency and a sense of importance, like you can set a deadline, but I much prefer working at a sustainable pace because the problem is if you focus, if you put pressure on everyone to deliver, that means teams are not going to help each other out, right? Because everybody looks at their velocity chart and they're like, yeah, I'm not going to help you. So all this deadline focus that really just minimizes collaboration in my experience, because everybody's just focused on, okay, I've got this project. If I meet this deadline, I will get a, a like my manager will be happy. And if I don't, I get punished. And yeah, that, that really causes problems. So what I try to do is, for example, let's say I need to deliver something which is pretty big. Then I try to scope down as a first small first version, which is over a more reasonable time frame, probably something like uh, two to six weeks, right? Not more. And then I will say in six weeks or in four weeks, we will deliver this. And then when it's done, we'll have more information to give a forecast for the rest. And then it will be way more realistic. It still won't be perfect, but I really talk of it in terms of the forecast because it's based on the current understanding. And if you keep talking about as deadlines or you make a deadline of three months, you won't make it. Everybody will frust be frustrated, even though they're working as hard as they can. And they're just like, there's a fog of beforehand, like you're limited by what you can know before starting. And there's nothing you can do that can remove that unless you start, right? And that's, I think, is the key thing. And then you can set a more realistic deadline or timeline if you would need to do that. And that is exactly the word that I personally encourage teams, companies to, to adopt in its forecasts rather than deadlines. It's we forecast based on, again, the knowledge we have at the, at the time, based on our current situation, that this is when something will be ready. And we can't guarantee it. It's not, it's not a commitment as such, but we will keep we'll maintain transparency and keep you abreast as how things progress and as you were saying they're having kind of a a nearer term planning horizon based on what you know and it, it might be rough and raw but it's it's something is for me a, a far better thing than going right we're going to commit to the next nine months of work and there's lots of unknowns around it and it's going to force everyone to feel pressured and so on and so forth there's so many scenarios i can think of where, where a project manager or or someone has come and said, we need to have a deadline for this and we're going to set it. And we don't know everything up front and, and it compresses things. And yeah, there's there's frustration involved. So yeah, I, I'm a big fan of using the word forecast or estimates rather, rather than deadlines personally. But I can appreciate why having a line in the sand just as a date can help with focus things. Focus things. There is, um, is it Parkinson's law that says work will expand to fill the time available, right? If you've got six months to do something and it can be done in three, you probably still do it in six because you just add more and more things to it. So I think there, there is something to be said by having a date in mind, uh, just something to focus everyone, to align everyone around. But I definitely don't feel they should be longer than kind of that, yeah, six to 12 weeks time frame. I, I personally feel that uh, SAFE has their, their, their planning horizons, their PI planning, you plan an increment at a time. To me, that's kind of the maximum I, I recommend any sort of planning be, to be done. But even then, the outcome of a, a, a product increment or product increment planning is still a draft plan based on what you what you know at the time. And it is subject to change based on basic agile principles of inspecting, adapting and learning. Yeah, Sounds like we are aligned there. So 
There is another circus out there that I'm a fan of debating, and it's the the certification one. I know you're you've shared some Ooh. content around this also, so it's probably going to be an interesting one. What are your thoughts on agile certifications and the the wealth of them that are out there at the moment? Yeah. So here's my honest opinion. So they're they're fulfilling a need, right? In the sense that there are a lot of inexperienced people out there that want to have a badge to show I'm capable. I mean, I have to be honest, right? I also suffered more from that when I had less experience, right? So you're like, yeah, I understand Scrum and you want something to prove it, to wave around. I think a lot of people do certifications because companies love certifications. They ask for it. It's easy to judge, right? Tick the box. We ask for a PSM2 or a CSM, whatever. <laughs> and yeah, uh, I can also tell you, this is, this is also a true story, right? I mean, uh, so there's this influence principle from CLDNE. It's called uh, authority, right? Certification is a way of signaling I have a certain amount of knowledge. People are super sensitive for that and companies are super sensitive for that because I was actually applying as a job for my first job as a product owner and I got rejected, I don't know, like probably like 50 times. And then I, back then, the certification world was not as big as it is now, right? So I, I put on the top of my resume, this is the only thing I've changed. I'm not joking. Certified product owner. And I didn't have the job of the product owner. I was back then, I was a business analyst. And suddenly I was invited to 70% of the interviews. I'm not kidding. From zero to 70%. One line change in the resume. So yeah. But of course, now the situation is different. I think it is devaluated a bit like it's not as special anymore when it as it was back then i've been for a similar experience i remember um almost wanting to collect as many as possible thinking that if i knew or if i had all these certifications then i would somehow uh, be better at what i do uh, i remember doing a bit of a talk about the the commoditization of agile certifications and i use safe as an example just because they they have a lot of them and it was something i remember re recounting if i if i if i collected them all like i was a Pokemon master, I would sound like Daenerys Targaryen, like Game of Thrones. I would sound like mother of dragons, breaker of chains, you know, first of first of her name, etc., etc. because it'd be SPC, SP, et cetera, et cetera. I could reel them all off. And I think to your point, it's kind of, it's, 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 it's related to industry demands and kind of almost, you almost have to play the game a little bit just to be considered sometimes. Yeah. Um, when I was earlier in my career, I couldn't get an interview unless I had Prince 2 related to project management. Yeah, it would be difficult to be considered for a Scrum Master if you didn't have a Scrum Master certification. So there's almost a moment you kind of got to play the game a little bit to, to do it. But I think, and, I met, and many people tend to agree with this, a two-day course does not make you great at what you do. Yeah, there are far more no. underlying skills and competences that you could have um, beyond just one of those two-day courses. And, and this is why I'm a fan of kind of the longitudinal learning so there, there are there are some great companies out there that, that, that do kind of courses over longer periods of time that bake in continued learning that have cohorts of people that work together to to share knowledge and experience and i'm i'm far more a believer in in that approach than just churn out as many uh certified people as possible so uh i don't want to plug someone but sure nyland is doing the road to mastery and uh, with cohorts of people and he, I think he's especially doing it for the exact same reason as you're saying, like actually uh, collaborating regularly with people to get them to level up and not just about the theory, but how do you really uh, 
should act as a scrum master because a lot of it isn't just about what you know. Like it's about uh, I think a lot large bottleneck is how can you influence others and get them to understand better why agile and scrum why it is the way it is, and that's all about communication, influencing skills, situational leadership, and that's not something you will get from a two-day course. That's something you need to practice over longer periods of times. And even then you won't be perfect at it. It's very, very difficult. <laughs> Completely. Uh, and again, not, not to plug anyone else, but I know Tobias Mayer does something similal with his certified Scrum Master course. It's longitudinal over multiple evenings, over multiple weeks. And I think that that definitely helps with, with bedding in knowledge uh, and transferring that and hopefully building some skills and learnings along the way. So it's, it's a shame to see there is so much certification out there uh, but it just demonstrates how widely used Agile now is. It's a great thing. I remember having this conversation with, with Mike Conan, one of the first guests on the podcast. He was saying he would love it if Agile was no longer talked about as a thing. It was just what we did. It was just how we work because we recognize the benefits it brought. So it stopped becoming we're going to do this Agile transformation or we are Agile. We just did it. That's just how we did things. No, I think that's a, a really brilliant way of looking at it. And I was actually thinking today, because I gave this presentation on road mapping, I think a lot of it has to do with with our education, right? Complex domain. Like we always, during university with our studies, we learn, read the book, then you do the test, you get 100%. And then and that's kind of like what continues, right? As well, like in many university, university studies, we're like, okay, you can study this and then you know everything. But yeah, in, in complex work, the problem is you don't know everything. That's the problem. And how do you deal with that? And, and there's no way of knowing everything until you start doing the work. And that's, I think that's so such a different mindset. It doesn't come naturally to us. And we also want to be perfect. We don't want to make mistakes. Well, when you do complex work, you're going to make mistakes. You can, you will always make mistakes. And I think this is something maybe our education system should, should teach us more about this, but like, because it's not that obvious or natural, I think. I, I completely agree. I remember having this conversation with a number of Agile practitioners sometime last year about how wouldn't it be great if just come, some of the principles around Agile were taught at younger ages. You know, If you were taught to embrace an experimentation mindset, uh, a failure is not being a dirty word, but a learning opportunity, if you were taught that a lot younger, there'd probably be a lot less stigma and pressure on, on youngsters growing up for having to do everything perfect the first time because it's, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to learn. I often say, uh, don't fail fast, just learn fast. Failure is this, it's still a, a stigmatized word that certain demographics hate. You know, leadership don't like the idea of failing because it's seen to reflect poorly on them and, and they're, they're worried about what it means. But if we create an environment where people can feel comfortable learning, experimenting, making mistakes, adjusting as they, I don't care if you make a mistake, all I care is that you learn from it and that you adjust your approach accordingly and try and avoid that same mistake happening again. So Bill, what camp are you? What do you? Do you think failure is a dirty word or do you think it's okay to I, use? I, I just... used to. I used to think failure was awful. And I used to judge myself for making mistakes and, and messing up and, and now it's just, okay, it happens. It happened because of a reason. Either it was unknown or I didn't try my hardest or there's probably multiple reasons for it, but it happens. So move on. You can't change the past. You cannot change the past. So all you can do is focus on the future. Future. You can All you can do is focus on the things that are within your influence, you know, the sphere of your influence. Yeah. Do something different next time. Yeah, absolutely right. And then I, I, I quote this so often. Uh, Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. 
So it's the same thing. You know, if, if, and this is how I encourage teams to to, to change, to, to to retrospect, to do things differently. Because if they're unhappy with their current reality, they need to do something differently. Let's try something new, learn from how it goes. If it doesn't go, if it doesn't go great, okay, let's try something different. What could we tweak? What could we, or if it's going great, can we amplify that and, and take that even further? I think you're you're spot on. And one thing I also see, just to add to that, is you see when there's a problem, they are, people always think and they come up with a complicated solution or not as simple as it can be. And I'm always like, let's try the simplest thing that could work mm. because then we gain more information and then we can always make it more complicated. The problem is if you start complicated, you're not going to make it simple. We just don't remove it things. Uh, and then you also know whatever you add, you really need because it fills. Like there is value in, in failing, right? Because whatever you then add to make it succeed, that is really necessary. And I think a lot of teams skip this where they're just debating, should we do this and that? And they come with a perfect solution on paper. But the reality is they suffer from premature optimization and they didn't come up with the best solution, but it, it, it works. So they feel like it is an amazing solution. <laughs> Yeah, they've allowed they've allowed perfects to be the enemy of goods, right? You could take a movement in the right direction, and this again, it's, it's all I'm looking to do when I'm trying to help teams. I'm not saying be perfect, agile. Who know, who even knows what that is? It, it varies depending on your circumstances, anyway. But here here is ideal. Here here is a, a great agile team, and here is where you are now. We're not gonna, you're not going to suddenly become that overnight. But if you take small steps in the right direction, the law of marginal gains, right? The, the, what what Sky did and 2010 where they just made tiny improvements to lots of little different facets and over time that aggregated to create a great team that won multiple things it's the same thing don't let perfect be the enemy of good don't don't gold play everything just take small steps in the right direction and it comes back to how how i'm doing retrospectives to say right in this from this retrospective all we're looking to do is try and find i don't know anything between two and five new things to do differently that are hopefully going to improve things and in a few weeks time we'll see how they went and maybe we'll try some we'll try some more Marginal gains, slight improvements. That's what it takes. Well, I always explain it with uh, uh, so there was this person that traded a red paperclip for a house, and you would say that's impossible. That's but that's because he didn't trade it immediately for the house. He traded for a ballpoint pen, and then for a, a small toy car, etc., etc. And ultimately, he had a house. And that's basically every trade made the adjacent possible different, like what was possible. And and yeah, that's exactly as you're saying, like. Every step illuminates a new uh, path on the stairway, right? That you couldn't see before on this winding stairway. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, the theme I mentioned to you, the theme of this 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 podcast, is all about uh, hearing from established thought leaders, but also from from newer voices that are doing great stuff out there that perhaps aren't being heard. So, is there anyone you feel that I perhaps should reach out to and get involved in the show, or that perhaps some of the listeners should should take a look at? Who should look into the sorts of work that they're doing? Yeah, so let me think about that. So um, I, I I feel like uh, Sjord Nijland is doing a lot of interesting stuff with his Road to Mastery. And I don't think he's on a lot of podcasts, but I could be wrong. And I think it's a shame because he is carving his own path. He's not part of the big certification bodies, right? And uh, I think that that's some, he represents a different perspective. So I, I would say uh, Sjord, and uh, yeah, Willem and Aagling as well. I mean, they're 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 founders of Sears Scrum, so people know them. But uh, I think they are doing interesting stuff. They are not uh, affiliated heavily with any certification body. They're trying to be independent, and I really like that. Sounds great. I'll uh, I'll reach out to them. 
Now, Martin, I always ask anyone who appears on my show to add a new theme to my retro backlog. So what if you could if you could add anything to any if you could inspire me in any way to create a brand new retrospective around anything you wish, the world is your oyster, what would it be? Gremlins. Gremlins. Love that show. That that movie. Oh my god, Gremlins one or two doesn't matter. Both of them. I'll, I'll do a combination, right? The, the, the first, the first one is the best one, I think. But the second the one, one, the also one has winter. The, the only one, the, the, the bit I really like about the second one is where you've got the Frank Sinatra female. Is it? Is it it's like a Frank Sinatra yeah. one and a, and a female one because they've they've morphed in that in that or in that lab and got a bit crazy. Yeah, I can definitely. I think I, I did actually start a Gremlins theme one last year. I just didn't get around to finishing it. This was part of my did an agile advent calendar last year and just started releasing lots of christmas ones so i got around to doing die hard and home alone and uh and elf and various other ones i just didn't quite get to gremlins so i will definitely do it it's christmas is coming up so it feels feels like it's time gremlins the retrospective nice so chris the reason you want to know why i said gremlins because you've done so much so many of them i was thinking i need to come up with something you didn't do (laughs) and it turns out you're already working on it so i was like damn (laughs) but it's not it's not out yet it's (laughs) not out yet so you've now elevated a little bit further up the backlog based on you know demand demand is there now uh so immediately my mind thinks to you know what's going to what's in terms of risk what what is the equivalent of us getting wet or what is uh what what's like our eating after midnight what's going to turn us into a a gremlin i don't know <laughs> my mind yeah, there's, there's a lot of directions you can go in there uh yeah opportunity gizmo right i guess or something yeah, yeah. Like gizmo it. with a crossbow gizmo with his, his little and fabricated the thing. yeah with... <laughs> love it i'm gonna have to watch that soon again now <laughs> right it's been it's been great hosting you on the show martin um really appreciate you coming and sharing your your thoughts and your wisdom around product management is there anything any final comments you'd like to make or any any final things you'd like to share with the listeners today um spend time with your customers and your stakeholders right that i think those two things we need to do more and uh, stakeholders are not your enemies they just have different interests and the better you understand them the better you can uh, get that get everyone on the same page in the same boat uh, uh, so those are the two things where, which i say like don't obsess over all these scrum mechanics they're not unimportant but if you put garbage in, there's going to garbage is going to be coming out. So really, those two things need more deserve more attention. Excellent, thank you for that. That was the end of the episode with with Martin. Uh, we're always looking for new guests to appear on the show, so do reach out if you'd like to be involved. And as always, folks, don't stop believing. You've just listened to another episode of the Virtually Agile podcast. Don't forget to check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk for one of the largest collections of free templates on the web on all things Agile. If this show provided value, I'd love your support by following or subscribing on your platform of choice. See you folks next time.